Hello and welcome to Making UX Work, the Give Good UX podcast. I'm your host, Joe Natoli, and our focus here is on folks like you doing real, often unglamorous, UX work in the real world. You'll hear about their struggles, their successes, and their journey to and through the trenches of product design, development, and of course, user experience. Today, my guest is Daniel Boschniak. Daniel is a multidisciplinary designer who focuses on UX design, brand strategy, and crafting usable, beautiful digital products of all kinds. Over the last 15 years, he's applied those design and UX talents to everything from websites to web applications to mobile apps. After working in the high-stress environment of commercial aviation, Daniel recently struck out on his own as an independent UX designer. He now serves clients all over the world. And as I think you'll hear, his passionate belief in the value of UX and in doing things the right way should carry him through a long, successful career. Here's my conversation with Daniel Bosniak on Making UX Work. So, Daniel, tell me, how are you? (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) We better uh, all sit down and (laughs) take a breath. Yeah, we better, yeah, take take a breath. Well, um... I'm good. Uh, the work work is good. Life is good. It's a sunny day outside, and uh, I'm happy to uh, be here and talk to you, Joe. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here as well, and the, the sun is shining where I am also, so maybe that's a good sign. You are a fairly new entrepreneur, correct? Fairly new, but I I am a freelancer for I was freelancing probably I started back in I think two thousand and one uh-huh, okay. maybe two thousand one two thousand two probably around that but yeah as a company yeah I've just started you know in January this year so yeah fresh congratulations uh thank you I guess <laughs> you know people tell me you know you're gonna be entrepreneur that's so hard don't do it don't ever do it just you know keep your day job whatever you know work in your cubicle but you know nope so what what prompted you to make the leap uh, well I um, I was unhappy at work really mm-hmm. and it was just becoming uh, a stress rather than you know it was enjoyable at first. I worked as an aircraft engineer at, at an airline, our national airline here in Zagreb, Croatia. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was just one of my interests from, from the early age. You know, I want to be a pilot, you know, watch Top Gun, Tom Cruise. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I kind of, with the, you know, with the uh, design and, you know, the programming and uh, this uh, work that I do, I started, like I said, back in 2001. But, you know, around 2007, 2008, it all became just, I don't know, it, it started to look like a mass, mass production conveyor belt type, you know, work where I was just churning out, uh, slicing PSDs into HTML and CSS and JavaScript and making, you know, templates and yeah. uh, WordPress files and all of that. And it was just getting to me. And I thought I should probably do something else. So it was like sort of turned into like assembly line tactical work. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Assembly line. It was just, you know, uh, a small company 
and we took you know too much work to survive if you remember you know 2008 was just mm -hmm. the yeah. probably the ugliest uh, year uh, of the decade yeah you definitely. know with the recession with everything so yeah and about that time you know I decided I should do something try to do something else not just sit around the computer all day yeah. which ironically I ended up doing as well on the new job but <laughs> what, what kind of things were you working on with the airlines? I mean, you're talking about interfaces, obviously, and building, I'm assuming, web-based products, but what were they? Yeah, uh, these were, uh, we had an in-house uh, CMS uh -huh. that were, we were building, and, you know, it was basically like, you know, dashboard kind of uh, designs, modules. For the website? Yeah, for websites, but also for a web applications like, you know, hotel booking, for example. Ah, okay. We had, a, you know, a backend for a hotel booking web application, which was an, an internet, actually. It had a front end that was public, but it was just it was just a part of a huge you know hotel system that you know people come on the website and they make a reservation and then the backend people can you know access the reservation and reply to the you know customer and etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm -hmm. so uh, and also we had one other product that was geared towards real estate and basically it was a data database application for uh, real estate people that they can, you know, list properties and all, all that stuff. Wow. That's a pretty wide swath for, I mean, were you working directly for the airlines or were you working for an agency that was connected to the airlines? Uh, the hotel booking and the real estate, these are the jobs I was working for, the agencies that I worked for before I jumped into aviation. But when I jumped oh, into okay. aviation, I still freelanced on the side, but the aviation field is really think about you know how much data data an airline generates. Sure. Each airplane is you know Massive. has millions of parts, and you have to uh, follow every critical part. The maintenance checks are done in intervals, be it hourly or daily or weekly or monthly or yearly or even you know multiples of those. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you have to have some kind of a system that enables you to track all that data and, you know, uh, issue work orders uh, to the mechanics that they can, you know, perform the, you know, the required checks mm -hmm. and inspections and services and uh, that stuff. And the application that we were using, it's called uh, Amicus. And it's quite, you know, it's, it is it is a standard I mean, there are a lot of a lot of uh, vendors uh, basically that produce uh, and offer these types of uh, sort of ERP systems. Sure. But this one in particular is very old and it's, it's been on market a very long time. So many companies use it, but it's just ugly as hell. Yeah. It's you know it's this olive green colored UI and you know it was designed back in probably 97 when tabs were all the rage. Yeah, of course. You know and it prompted me to you know try and do something about it. And there were few engineers at work that were also you know they, they're not software engineers, so it was all me all mechanical engineers as you can imagine and they had you know, a knack for solving problems. And basically what I try to do at the airline is to establish 
a department, mm-hmm. basically, where we can, you know, uh, probably assemble a team and uh, try to basically help ourselves and make our lives easier by, you know, coming up with our own internal tools and solutions that we can use and plug into the uh, existing stuff. And this, this application was just not enough. There are some modules that were missing that the company wouldn't pay for. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so we were forced to do, you know, manually. Uh, there were thousands of Excel spreadsheets and Word files, and it was just a huge pile of mess. And I couldn't believe that an airline, a serious company like an airline would do that. It was just, it, it, it's unbelievable, you know. And They're limping along with all these disparate sources. Yeah, but it's not better. You, you think, you know, other companies like maybe Lufthansa and other companies that I've been in touch with, you know. Also, people were, you know, like, yeah, join the club, you know. Yeah, and that's, I think that's par for the course. For I mean, I know it's not manufacturing per se, but anytime you're, you're talking manufacturing repair overhaul all that stuff yeah my own clients i've seen the same thing um you have these third-party systems that are that are created by a handful of vendors and i don't know if this was your experience but they're closed to some degree there's only a certain degree of customization that you can achieve without as you said maybe spending additional money on modules or you know just this massive undertaking to try and get a new front end that interfaces with the middle tier and back end stuff that's there yeah yeah. So it sounds like that's where that's where you were. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we were trying to through our you know management, we were trying to ask the company that you know built uh, this this application. Mm-hmm. They they gave us you know a demo database with our own data. So you know we have a data set to work with, mm-hmm. just a database, so we can try to build our own front end. But you know the company never took us seriously, sadly. They appreciated our enthusiasm and, you know, a pat on the back. But, you know, why do you think that is the company? This company is, uh, you know, they are government owned and people just come at nine and they stay up until, you know, uh, 5 p.m., 6 p.m. They just go home and they don't care. Yeah. So, you know, no ambition. No, you know, it was it was like, yeah, it's fine. You know, that that, that you want to you know do all this, but just, you know, just. Probably best if you leave it alone and just tag along and... (laughs) Sure. Do you think that's because, I mean, on a personal level, these folks see that as as sort of an addition to their their workload or, you know, something that's going to disrupt their comfort level or they're just so exhausted and (laughs) beaten down that they just don't want to go there? I mean, what do you think is the cause of that? Uh, Well, I think... Probably, you know, you said they are beat down and overstressed because the work is very stressful. It's a lot of responsibility. These airplanes are carrying, you know, potatoes. They are carrying people, and you have to yeah. really make sure yeah. that, you know, everything works and the, you know, all the, you know, flight controls are in order and the engines and, you know, cockpit and all these millions of little parts. So I don't want to blame anyone and say, you know. For their lack of enthusiasm, or maybe I don't know. Uh, the thing I want to say is, uh, many many people were coming to you know bring their airplanes. Many companies were bringing their airplanes for servicing to our company, and we were talking to all these all these other people from other companies, and they have built their own tools in house. Mm-hmm. 
they were able to get support from their, you know, leadership and their management. And how? Wow, how well these companies were, you know, willing to uh, listen. Yeah. They were willing to invest money. And they were, you know, they saw this as an opportunity and an investment rather than an expense. Right. This one company from Austria, they built their own web application that enabled them to quickly answer any requests for, you know, technical assistance from pilots and co-pilots. They will usually call you from the cockpit in flight, really, and say a thing. Wow. Yeah, they, they call me, you know, they call they call you at 3 a.m. and say, you know, this is uh, flight 4029. We are having issues with there is an error error on the screen and what what do we do do we you know land in sarajevo or do we divert back to zagreb and you have to you know make a split decision in five seconds and you know you have to sift through these manuals that are on your desk that have thousands of pages my god you have to know exactly what what is wrong immediately because the decision you make costs the company you know hundreds of thousands of dollars or euros or whatever yeah and you know because the passengers they are not going to land where they were supposed to land they were going to divert and you have to feed them you have to give them accommodation and you have to transfer them to their original destination and that costs a lot of money Mm. and if you have 300 people on an airplane you can you know you can imagine how much money that is going to cost you So out of curiosity, and I'm not trying to pin you down here, but did you guys ever make that case to your management or, you know, whoever needed to hear it? Yes, of course. (laughs) That look, we're hemorrhaging money in these instances. Yes, Joe, but nobody cares. Nobody cares. It's a government-owned company, 51%, and they, Uh, nobody cares. So self-interest, it sounds to me like self-interest is trumping the greater rationale. Yeah. I was at the meetings where where people were literally, you know, yelling at each other. People were concerned. How is this possible that are we, you know, in the business of making money or losing money, you know, and, and it was just insane. So, yeah, basically, that, that's the reason I decided to move on. And yeah. it's, not a, it's not a place for me to, you know, try and build a, build a career. I was offered other positions in other companies in, you know, n- not in Croatia, not in. But, you know, since I had a family, I was not able to, you know, so easily move to maybe, you know, Germany or Ireland or, or USA even. So, well, the scenario you just described to me, I mean, the stress sounds absolutely enormous. Yeah. Do you know the uh, maybe you've seen the you know National Geographic documentary series called Air Crash Investigation? No, I haven't. It's a series of documentaries where you know when a plane crashes, what what happens after you know, and then there is a lot of talk about aircraft maintenance. And actually, we were shown these uh, documentaries while in while I was at the university, actually. Mm-hmm. While I was studying, and they were showing us, you know, how important it is to really be diligent uh, with your work, and you know what it actually takes to, you know, keep airplanes flying safely. And yeah, yeah I can only imagine. So when you jumped, when you said, "Okay, I'm going to strike out on my own," you sort of invite a new set of challenges, right? So did your stress level go down significantly? Did it change? Was it different? Well, it, it went down significantly uh, because, you know, I, I knew it was going to be hard. I knew some people that I left behind, they were actually envious because I already had 
another career before that, you know, because I was 27 when I entered university and just started later in life as opposed to, you know, all my, you know, colleagues and peers and friends from, you know, high school. I didn't go to, I didn't go to college right after high school. I was working. I wanted, you know, I wanted money. It was 2001, 2002. I was working freelance and I was doing everything myself. If you can remember, you, you could, one person could do everything. You know, there was no UX designers, <laughs> copywriters, yeah, it was a time. <laughs> uh, you know, programmers, back end, for front end. I just opened up Notepad and coded a web page. Yeah, it was more like, who knows how to do this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you? Okay, it's you. Yeah, it's you. So I had, I had this, you know, work experience and basically a whole career before I even entered aviation. Mm. And so when I got out, you know, I, I knew what, what to do. I, I, I was able to thankfully, you know, hit the ground running and just, you know, take it from there. And I have been doing well, but I probably want to make some changes and maybe it's not about money for me it's it, now it's more like you know i want to be doing something that you know is of value to someone and charge good money still but you know not necessarily just be like uh, like an assembly line like you said and yeah. just you know churning out whatever it is that it that it needs to be done and i think that's that's a commonality across every person who does any kind of, I mean, I think that's UX people. I think it's in any area, information architects, uh, designers, even developers, a lot of the, the folks that I've met, I, I think the one commonality that I see over and over and over again, that industry tends to ignore still, even in 2017, is that feeling like you're contributing something of value is probably the biggest motivation for people doing this work. Well, for me, it is. Isn't it for you? Of course. Of course. It's the only thing that matters. And when you've done anything... I would do it for free. Yeah. I would do it for free, you know? I don't care. And I think most of us are like that. I really do. Yeah. And, and I think that's why folks, you know, like in the situation you just described, I think that's the motivation f more than the frustration, more than the day-to-day -day issues and aggravations. It's more about, man, I just, there's all these things that we could do to make this easier, better, to solve these problems, to make these people's you know, emotional states <laughs> better. Yeah. And, and I just can't do it. You feel like your hands are tied. Yeah. And after a certain point, you say, okay, I can't bang my, my heart, because that's really what it is, against this wall anymore. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah. I mean, I mean, what is your experience? You know, what, what, what has your experience been? You've done a lot of, obviously, great work. And, you know, I look up to you as uh, someone that, you know, has done a lot of great work in the industry that I, you know, I probably want to be like you when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, I'm interested in, you know, this field of systems and uh, web applications that are, you know, uh, closed, that are not main mainstream, you know, commercial yeah. stuff that you see, you know, outside. So what is your experience? You know, how do you feel about all this? Well, I, here's the thing, okay? If you do anything long enough, and I've said this before, you see a lot of successes, of course, but you also see a lot of failures. And the one thing that nobody talks enough about, and myself probably included, is that it can come with a lot of heartache. Yeah. Okay? It, it really can. These are difficult situations. As much as everybody gives lip service to UX 
and design and has, okay, since 2001, 2000, when the tech bubble, you know, sort of reached its apex, for as much as it's talked about, it is very difficult to implement, all right? It's very difficult to change an organization's culture, especially if it's a large organization. So what happens is, like your scenario, okay, where a group of you get together and say, okay, let's try to do this because we think it's important because we see evidence that it's going to make a difference And you push and you push and you push and it either works to some small degree and you get a little success. And that's what convinces people higher up the chain to say, all right, they're onto something here. Or you just can't get through the walls and the bureaucracy and the red tape and everything else. And you say, well, we got to move on. So what I think is that, well, I think there's two parts to this. And and you probably know this because you've heard me talk a lot. You've read the the articles and the, the videos and all that kind of stuff. My thing is, I am not a believer in formal, strict processes, okay? There's a lot of stuff about UX out there that's very formalized, very structured, blah, blah, blah. You know, do these steps and magic will happen. I don't believe that. What I think is that you have to be incredibly creative and agile and light on your feet. Whether it's a client or you're working inside an organization, you have to find a way to implement this stuff in small ways in line with the things that the organization is already doing. Right. Right. You can't say it has to be like this. We have to do this. We have to. Our user research process has to look like this. Right. It doesn't work. It doesn't really. Right. I mean, has has that been your experience as well so far? Yes, exactly. I just, you know, I probably wish that the management of the airline was here with us right now so I can tell them, listen to this. (laughs) 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 This is it, you know, because trying to, you know, prove my value as a, you know, UX Probably, you know, not the designer, but probably a thinker has been the hardest part of any engagement that I've had so far as, uh, you know, working on a project Sure. since I, since I quit the job. And before that, even uh, because, you know, UX design, it's a buzzword right now. And, you know, you'll see all these job ads. Everybody now wants to have a UX designer on their team. It's, sure. it's, it's something that Facebook does or Apple does or, you know, something that Google does. And we should probably, you know, do it as well. But nobody really, nobody really cares. Nobody cares. People tell me, you know, can you just quickly, you know, mock up this, you know, process for us? Can you send us some PNG files, some wireframes? And I said, No. I will send you a list of 50 questions, maybe 100 questions. I will not open Photoshop or, you know, Balsamic or Axure or or Envision or anything like that until I ask you. You know, it all starts with a conversation first. And then we drill into the problem. And, you know, for me as a freelancer, uh, independent, you know, contractor, I try to become a part of your team. And I have to become you. And I have to learn your product and your customers and your market. And then I can probably, you know, start thinking about how to best serve you and what value can I bring to you or not. You know, often I will say, there's probably nothing I can do to help you. You know, you should probably first talk to a copywriter. Yeah, those are all the right answers. Yeah, those are all the right answers. I was working with a client recently, and they sent me these, you know, existing website templates, and they wanted to, you know, redesign their website. And I started designing. You know, I started, you know, playing with, you know, colors and concepts, and I uh, laid out a few comps 
I try to establish a look and feel and that type of thing. But then they hire a copywriter, and this copywriter changed all the text. (laughs) Nice. And then I said, you know, the copy needs to be ready before I – you know, even open open up Photoshop because the text is actually a shape. Of course. Because when you open up a page, you first uh, see the text as a shape, and then you uh, comprehend the actual sentence when you read it. Yep. yep. And et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it's it's really hard. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about you know. You said you know a lot of heartache. It's a lot of heartache because you have to. And the thing is, I do think there are a lot of people that don't care. I, I also think that sometimes the things that they do care about are really the same things that we care about, but there's a disconnect in how they understand how to get there. And in some cases, you know, how we talk about it, everything you've just described to me, okay, that, that, you know, you say to this client, like, no, I'm not doing that. Here's how this, this needs to work. That is unfortunately, in a lot of cases, what you have to do. And then you have to explain to them, why it is that you don't want to do these things. And sometimes they'll hear it and sometimes they won't. And, you know, you alluded to me in my career. I will tell you that for every yes, okay, and every success and every long-term gig, you know, relationship that I have with a client, there are 20 more that never went beyond the first engagement. Oh, man. I thought we were going to say five or 10. 20. 20 probably exaggerating a little bit, but I'm not too far off. There are a lot of dead ends okay, until you get to the point where, and I'm lucky, okay, please understand, I'm very, very lucky, where you can get to the point where things come along and you just say, nope, sorry, not interested. And I can take on the things that I want to take on and I can say no to the things that I don't. Oh, man, yeah. But I believe, I really believe, Daniel, that the only way to that level, whatever you want to call it, is by doing exactly what you're doing. Oh, but it's such an uphill battle all the time, you know? It just takes so much effort. I try to read so many books, and your Udemy course has been just, you know, I, I keep going back to it, actually, and your book, you know, Think First. It's, it's the, I think it's the best title of any UX book I've found, you know? Think First, man, <laughs> Think First, because, you know, if you just start uh, sketching on pen, pencil and paper, no. Please think first. Yeah. Please do the thinking first in your mind, and then you know you can produce something. You know, an artifact, wireframe. You know, whatever. But you know, it's a battle. You, you have to justify your existence every day. I am a UX designer. I I'm here to help you. But yeah, it's constant learning actually, and we. Well, me personally, I still have a lot to learn mm-hmm. and try to find the way to look at all this through, you know, my client's eyes right. and maybe try to find a way to surface the pain points and the friction points and how they, you know, perceive it rather than how I perceive it. And, you know, rather than me just pushing my designer agenda where I just want to have fun building stuff, you know, actually you're solving a business problem. It's in the end, it's all about money and, you know, making money. Sure. So how do you think you do that? I mean, how do you get them? How do you get a client, oh, man. Um, whether they're a prospect or a current client, how do you get them to see themselves in what you're describing? Or in other words, you know, how do they get them to say, yeah, Jesus, that's exactly my problem. Now I'm listening. Oh, 
it's it's super hard because every client is different and every type of business is different. Sure. And you have to know, first learn uh, everything that you can about their type of business and, you know, try wearing their shoes and, you know, their customers and their users and clients and their market. And you have to understand that the bigger picture and you have to really think hard about that. Then you can, you know, you can talk about their issues and their problems on their level but i think the greatest skill that you can have for me personally as a one-man band you know is to listen and listen carefully what they have to say amen amen yeah and 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 it, it took me you know a long time to to learn that because i was always you know in a rush and you know deadlines and we have milestones that we want to reach etc etc but you know if you're going to rush through things what quality level are you going to achieve you know is it worth reaching a milestone if you're not hitting your desired goals in terms of what you want the uh, end product to be then you can turn on your inner UX designer self. Then you can start applying what you know. Yeah. Have you had situations where, especially now as an entrepreneur, freelancer, have you had situations where a client has come to you for one thing, okay, say we need to redesign this, and in the process of conversation, you start to get the sense that there is something else happening here that maybe part of what they need is not a redesign. It's there's a deeper problem. Oh, yeah. Have you had any of those experiences? Yeah, I, I've, I was going to say every project is like that, but, but it's not. Sometimes people really, they know their business better than you do. And, you know, sure. it's sometimes best to, like I said, just listen to them and, you know, try to, you know, understand what they want to achieve. But sometimes the client really, you know, they want to do one thing, but actually they have a much bigger problem on their hands that they are not aware of. And you shouldn't be afraid to raise the issue and raise, raise some questions and try to, you know, make them aware of that. Even at the cost of the engagement and you, you know, losing a client over this. Yeah. And I think that's right. You have to be willing to say, you know, look, we can do this work as you're describing it. But I think there's a bigger problem here, right? And it's, you, and you know, as well as I do, it's usually money related. Yeah. And if we don't address that, you're going to spend this money and I'm happy to, you know, take your, <laughs> happy to take your money and do whatever you want. But <laughs> understand that after this is over, on the day that we launch it, three months after, six months after, 12 months after, you're going to have the same problem. Exactly. Yeah. You're going to have the same problem and you're going to call me and you're going to, you know. <laughs> right. So I, I think as long as there's an understanding that it's not going away and look for survival, sometimes you take the job anyway. You know, I've certainly, I keep telling you, I'm lucky that I've been doing this this long, but I've certainly found myself in numerous positions where I just had to shut up and do the work. Because it wasn't going to go that way, and bills need to be paid, and that's how it is. Even you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was, you know, in the early stages of my career especially, you know, I ran my own firm for almost 10 years. And at the beginning, okay, like back in, let me think, I don't know, like 95, 96 maybe? Oh, man. There was a lot of that, okay? And then in 2000, right around 2000, when the whole dot-com, the tech bubble really started to build. Yeah, dot-com bust, yeah. You were getting offers for unbelievable amounts of money, okay? And nobody cared 
about success. Companies were being valued on their burn rate, how fast they could burn through their venture capital. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Your valuation would actually go up as an organization if you were looking to get bought based on how much money you were spending. So people would come to us and say, you know, can you build this and do this and do this? And of course we said, yeah. And in a lot of cases, because the money was tremendous and I had a business, I had six employees to support. Yeah. And there were a lot of things that I couldn't afford to say no to, even though in some cases I did, you know, you feel that conflict where it's like, okay, we're going to do this, but I I don't know if it's going to (laughs) work. Yeah, but they didn't care, probably, you know? <laughs> no, no, at the time they didn't. But then the bubble burst and a lot of those companies um, died horrible deaths. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I was just starting and I, I read about it. I, I didn't know, actually, you know, I was 20 at the time yeah. and I just started working. I didn't know, you know, dot-com bubble, what is that? I remember reading about this and, you know, I remember all this, you know, all this news about 50 companies, you know, closed their doors and laid off people. And I remember that time. It was ugly. It was really ugly. <laughs> you know, and that, that was the birth. That was the birth of um, Fast Company, for example, the, the, the magazine. That was the birth of, uh, there's a magazine called Business 2.0 that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. came out at that time. And it was all really interesting stuff. You know, I was sort of absorbing all this. It was really exciting. At the same time, all these outlets and the media was complicit as well, was saying, you know, the old ways of, of doing everything are dead. They're dead. It's a new era. And here we are. 17, almost 18 years later, and they're not dead. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they're not the, the dead. principles of what <laughs> constitutes value, you know, and, and what people are willing to pay for and why hasn't really changed a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm interested, again, because you're, you're sort of out there on your own. Do you feel like there's a disconnect between all the stuff that you see online, read online about, right? Everybody's posting case studies and all this kind of stuff about how they're leveraging UX or design or design thinking or, you know, one of those things. Do you find a disconnect in the work that you're doing between that and all this stuff that you hear about, read about online? Well, honestly, I try to, obviously, I follow you. I follow, you know, other people as well and try to, you know, stay stay in the know and, you know, follow the news about what's going on in the world of UX design. But definitely there is a disconnect because people are posting these, you know, as you said, studies and how they were able to, you know, achieve all these great results and increase sales or whatever. But I don't think every company can afford that and they don't necessarily have the conditions to practice UX yeah. that way because all these you know studies and these posts that I read on Medium are, are those are ideal and or almost ideal you know perfect conditions sure. for you know where everybody is on board you know I am a UX designer on a company's team and it's not just something that I do in my own cubicle or in my own office and you know I emerge uh, back, you know, after a few weeks and say, you know, here it is. Uh, I've solved that. Uh, Victory. Yeah. <laughs> you know, rather it's a team effort. And, you know, from the CEO down to the last employee in the company, you know, everybody has to be on board and know what's going on because UX design impacts the bottom line. And, you know, if you're trying to increase sales and you're, you're trying to build a, a sales funnel on a website, mm-hmm. You have to, you know, track data and see where your clicks are going. There are many, you know, 
ways of doing this, heat maps, yeah, whatever. Uh, but, you know, everyone has to be on board and everyone, everyone has to know why they are doing this and why, you know, this is the best way to solve a problem. Yeah. It's not just something that you, you know, do on your own and try to, you know, fight everyone and, you know, have to convince everyone that, it's something that they should do probably you know it's a team effort yeah and that's always my fear when i read a lot of this stuff i sort of have this underlying concern that all this creates sort of a a rock star culture right where the, the myth becomes because you do this type of work you are going to walk into any organization and com- oh yeah right command change command respect like i <laughs> i've come down from the mountain with the gospel you know right? <laughs> and everybody's just going to go wow that's i never thought of that please lead us Bow to me <laughs> and i i just don't think it happens that way exactly i, I saw something recently where um you commented on a, an article on medium and the author said to you oh, when are you going to write your book <laughs> and, and, and honest to god i thought to myself because i know you you know he probably really should write a book me yeah oh man <laughs> right yeah because understand all this stuff that we're talking about here you've experienced Okay, you've experienced, and that experience is valuable. Yeah, but I don't. I don't really think <laughs> that I have much to say. It would probably just be you know two paragraphs, and you know, or at least articles. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But and I'll tell you why. Okay, continue. And it's part of my own motivation. I don't know that I always succeed, but this is sort of always my goal. I, I feel like. I really want there to be a voice, you know, mine, and I want there to be other voices in particular who are sort of telling the truth about the reality of some of these situations. It's not all glamorous and perfect. And as you said, it's situations where everybody is on board and rowing in the same direction. I really think that everybody should hear more about the situations where it's difficult, where it is imperfect, and how you found ways to make it work in those instances. I think there's not enough of that. Really? Well, I think I agree. I don't find many articles exactly, you know, as you described that, you know, explain here's a problem, here's why it is a problem, and here's how I, we were able rather to, you know, solve it and overcome it. You know, I would love, I have yet to find a book that takes you to a real world problem that was solved in a company that shows exactly not just the steps that that were taken, but the amount of effort and, you know, the significance actually of why UX design is is valuable and, you know, what is it that makes people, companies, you know, try to think that way, you know. Since January this year, I think I probably purchased around 20, 25 books in UX. Do they leave you feeling like you're looking for something that's not there? Yeah. Every book I read, you know, I just, it's just a pile of, you know, papers, you know, dead trees. <laughs> 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 I already know all that stuff, you know, where's, you know, where's the good stuff where, you know, there obviously there are great books, but the majority of those books and that stuff you can find on the web. Sure. That, that's why I asked you to write the, you know, enterprise <laughs> UX book, because you have all this real world experience that, you know, it, it shows through your talks and, you know, your courses and your books and your blog posts, you're very, very different than, you know, most of other influencers, I would say. <laughs> uh-huh. There's not a single waste 
twisted sentence in any of your wow. posts and your book. Wow, I don't know about that, but thank you. <laughs> no, 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 really, because it's all, you know, it, it all makes sense and it's all very, you know, coherent and all comes together and it's very, you know, readable and it's just on point. You are very focused and I just learned so much from you and I'm just, you know, happy to be your friend and have this conversation actually with you right now. Oh, thank you. Yeah, to learn from you and it's all, you know, it's all applicable in in real world and it helps. It helps immensely. And thank you. So why doesn't anybody talk about it? I mean, here's here's my and I ask myself this constantly. Like, why doesn't anybody talk about this stuff? What is it? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I mean, when you were, when, for instance, when you were at the airline, okay, you're trying to roll this huge rock up a mountain. Did you feel, for lack of a better word, I mean, did you feel alone? Oh man, not alone. I was like an alien on a different planet. You know? Yeah. That's how I felt actually. Everybody was looking at me. You know what? What? Why would you do that? You know, I've had friends and colleagues, these engineers, a few of them that were curious and, you know, they wanted to do something more. But it was just a few of us where the majority of people were just, you know, happy to punch in at nine and punch out at, you know, 5 p.m. and just go home, you know. Yeah. I mean, I have a kid and I have a family and, you know, mortgage and whatever. But (laughs) there's more to life than just uh, watching TV in the afternoon. (laughs) Yeah. And I think one of the things and I think this is human, right? When you find yourself in a situation, one of the first things, especially now in the age of the Internet, one of the first things that you do is you sort of you go looking for something that speaks to your situation. And in a way, you're looking for an answer, right? How do I deal with this? Who else? You know, there's got to be somebody else who's going through the same thing. Yeah. How do I deal with this? Like, for instance, I have always, I grew up working on cars um, and houses and all sorts of things. My father taught me a lot of that stuff. Oh, nice. And now, okay, cars have changed a lot. They're very complicated. Oh, yeah. You know, you look under the hood and everything is sort of jammed together <laughs> and, yeah. and looks alien to some degree. And one of the first things I do when I encounter something that's sort of beyond my knowledge is I go to YouTube because there are all these amazing videos people have posted. Like, okay, here's how you do that. Yeah. And it's incredible. And it's this very gratifying experience. It's like, okay, awesome. 14 other people have experienced the same problem. Or if I have something going on with my computer, right? I can get online and I hear, okay, there's, there's 40 people have had the same experience and here's how they fixed it. Yeah. I feel like increasingly that's the component that's sort of lacking in a lot of areas of this discipline, whether you're talking UX or IA or design or even development to some degree, I feel feel like there's an element of reality that's sort of missing. Do you feel that way? Yeah, exactly like you described. Yeah, I think I was thinking about starting a, you know, maybe a YouTube channel or maybe a just start posting on Twitter and trying to maybe create a brand that, you know, talks about the realities of just practicing UX design and, you know, in the real world. And I'm still trying to, you know, figure out the best way to do it. And, you know, I have a few topics that I'm interested in and I would probably, you know, want to write about. You should. I should, really. <laughs> yeah, you should. You. Maybe, maybe I will. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know if I have enough experience or enough expertise or, you know, 
anything valuable. I, I think it's just too selfish, maybe, sometimes uh. for me to write my own thoughts. And it's just, you know, one man's point of, point of view. That's what mine is. Uh. So is mine. It's just my point of view. Okay. If you've had any experiences, which you have, uh, yeah, there's value there. Okay. You're human. You experienced some things. You learned. You had successes. You had failures. And they're valuable. And in any of those situations, I promise you, if you were feeling a certain way about them, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people out there in similar situations feeling the same thing. Okay? There's no accumulation of time or experiences or there's no bar that you have to hit to say, okay, now it's okay for me <laughs> to talk about what I've experienced. Yeah. There's, there's no permission that you have to get. Okay. It's, it's really more a matter of letting yourself off the hook, combating the imposter syndrome that we all deal with uh, um, yeah. and, and saying, this is valuable. I promise you, Daniel, it is valuable. <laughs> Yeah, but it's, you know, public and you just, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's scary. I, I'm an introvert. You know, if, you, if you're if you familiar with the uh, Myers-Briggs type indicator, yeah. I am an INFP and, you know, very, you know, reserved introvert. Really? Yeah. <laughs> For the last 50 minutes, I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, because, you know. Working in the you know aviation you know it's a it's a very non INFP non introvert yeah. welcoming environment and I had to you know do th- uh, certain things to survive you know becoming you know more extroverted and you know it's not something I feel sorry about but deep down really I am you know and an introvert and this is why I you know I I had so many great ideas about posts and things I wanted to write about but you know I just put them off as nah. I shouldn't do that. <laughs> no. Sure. I understand. I did that for a long time. Really? Oh, yeah. You? Absolutely. Jonah totally did that. Absolutely me. And finally, oh, at the end of the day, finally, you just, you have to take the leap. So what made you take the leap? Where, where did you find the, you know, the courage or, you know, the permission or? I think what happened, I think what happened is it, it just sort of naturally evolved in that the work I was doing with clients, what started happening is that I noticed that they started seeing more value and were more attentive and more interested and more willing to pay me, quite frankly, (laughs) in the instances, right? In the instances where I was teaching them something or it was, it was a room full of people and a whiteboard and we were working through stuff, right? And I was asking them questions and trying to uncover what was going on. And people sort of sat up and took notice in those instances. Really? And it just started to become this thing where word sort of gets around and that's what people want from you. And it started to become obvious that that's, at least to them, where my value was. Now, I'm very hard on myself um, to this day. And at the time, I sort of didn't believe it either. But I thought, wow, this is going somewhere, so maybe I should follow it. Now, Later on in life, okay, I was fortunate enough to meet my wife. And when that happened, this all really took off to a different level because here was someone whose opinion and acumen and expertise I really respected. And she said, you got to do this stuff. Wow. Okay. Because you have to really forcefully put yourself out there more than you are. People will react. Nice. And she was right about that. Well, you're a lucky man. (laughs) Yeah, very, very. I am ridiculously fortunate. So at some point, 
you just have to do it. And you also have to deal with the fact that along with the positive feedback you get, you're also going to get negative feedback. Okay, I get comments on everything that I do privately and publicly that are... They're personal attacks. Yeah. Okay? They're unkind. They're and I don't really know where they're coming from. Oh yeah, yeah, I know trolls. Yeah, you have to just shrug it off because for every one of those people, there's a hundred people who email you that say you have no idea how much I needed this today. Okay, and when that happens, man, I mean that's the reason to keep doing it. Oh wow. Okay, it really is. Yeah, and I guarantee you that if you get to the point where you just just put some stuff out there you'll likely experience the same thing, okay? Human experience is human experience. There's commonality there. And I think the stories that we all have to tell are more valuable than we realize. Oh, wow. If you would ask me right now, I would say totally, you know, something opposite, you know. I'd say probably I should, you know, shut up and just, you know, (laughs) do my work and, you know, don't rock the boat, just do your work and go Uh, home. (laughs) uh, I can tell... I can tell from the things that you write, that your comments in this conversation, you are much more than that, my friend. Thanks, Joe. So let me, we're, we're sort of at getting to the end here. So I want to hit you with some quick hot seat questions. What are you not very good at? Many things, actually. <laughs> if you can believe that. <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm trying to become more, you know, articulate and assertive when I'm in a meeting, for example, I struggle to, you know, uh, explain my ideas and convey the solution to the problem that, you know, a company is having. You know, I'm just trying to achieve a certain level of, you know, uh, of vocabulary and, you know, all the whole business uh, lingo so I can, you know, better communicate. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'm really good at that yet, I'm at least at not at the level that, you know, uh, I think I should be. So yeah. well, sometimes you have to let it be ugly. Okay. When it comes out, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and you sort of have to work through it anyway. And, and it, it works itself out. Yeah. Tell me something that you think is true about UX or design or development that almost nobody agrees with you on. Well, uh, I recently had an argument about the very thing we were discussing, you know, where the UX designer should, you know, lead the charge uh, rather than just be an order taker, mm-hmm. you know, you should actually try to get everyone on board. And uh, this friend of mine, he was like, no, you should, you should be, you should be aggressive. Just quietly, you know, offer your opinions and just try to show them the way and see if they, you know, see if they take it where I thought, you know, you should probably take a more aggressive stance mm-hmm. where people, you know, don't understand uh, what the UX design is and you should take ownership and responsibility try to educate people maybe you know shed some light on how the whole process works and and my friend he disagrees he just thinks that you should probably you know just do your part and yeah. not you know, not rock the boat and just fly. fold your hands be quiet yeah <laughs> what, what does he think is going to happen i don't know maybe he's afraid of you know losing a client yeah. and you know not having enough money to pay the bills and eat food <laughs> where i just you know i just march on and try to bring the best value that i think i can so you know if if 
if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If if it works, great. Right. And I, I think that's a challenge. All right. Working through fear is probably the most important skill that any of us can develop. Yeah. Working through fear. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it doesn't stop. It's tough. Okay? Yeah. You do, that, you do yeah. that to different degrees throughout your entire life. And it doesn't stop. Never. <laughs> what word or phrase do you say way too much? Like, you know, all the time. People say, you say that all the time. <laughs> I say on um, all the time. I'm afraid if, you know, when I listen to this podcast later, it just, I'm just going to, I'll probably just delete it. <laughs> Not listen to myself. Yeah. No, I think you'll be pleased. I, I say two words constantly. I say, okay. Yeah. All the time. Like so this. Okay. Okay. Or I say, right. <laughs> right. Ah, right, right. So it's like this, yeah. right? And, and when you listen back to it, you think, okay, is there anything between all these okays and rights? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, that's the same with me and my ums and uhs and yeah and, and yeah and probably and – So. So, yeah. so is a big one for me as well. So. <laughs> so. It's <laughs> our little human idiosyncrasies. What is one thing that you do that nobody knows about, a skill that you have, a talent you have? What's something that they don't know about, but maybe probably should? Well, I I can draw. Really? Yeah, I posted a few images recently on my Facebook, but I've been drawing since I was a little kid, and I love concept art, you know, for games and film. And I actually was looking to uh, enroll in a drawing course, the advanced drawing course where you learn how to use techniques like gouache and watercolor mm -hmm. it has helped me uh, immensely you know with the ux design sketching that sort of stuff it always looks you know i try to make it look neat yeah craft i mean that's that's, yeah. that's craft. craft um do you try to make try to carve out time for purely fine art pursuit you know drawing sketching things like that yeah i try to you know every saturday night i try to i used to draw maybe three or four times a week mm -hmm. i would carve out an hour in the evening to just you know take my paper and pen and charcoal and sketch on paper but i've <laughs> got a lot of work to do so <laughs> i i can't make it now just you know saturdays yeah, but yeah i did back in the 90s 90s when i was a teenager i Actually, I did a lot of graffiti. Wow, very cool. Yeah, it was. Uh, uh, some of these people are actually in museums right now. My God, yep. like you know, world famous artists. And yeah, yeah we we bombed you know buildings, trains, towers, bridges. Uh, we had our own magazine even. Really? Yeah, really. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I found one. I found a copy. Uh, from I think it's 94 or 95 when I was like you know 15 and I've had a few pieces of my own published in there as well and I think I still have my sketchbook somewhere see that drive that drive that motivation that that need yeah <laughs> design art yeah <laughs> right that need is is very very important now see I'm, I'm like you I've been drawing Ever since I could hold a, a pencil or a crayon uh, in my hand. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah, I was a I was a fine artist before I was anything. Really? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I oh, let's see the portfolio, Joe. <laughs> there's, I think, there are a lot of my drawings on um, DeviantArt, DeviantArt.com. Oh really? Yeah, that stuff is still out there. I think. And nice. It's honestly something that I really want to get back to because um, I just don't do it often enough, and I really truly enjoy it. So it's 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 good for me, and it's motivating. For me to hear that you you know you really try to carve out time to do that because I think it's important. It's who you are. It's not what you do. It's it's, it's who you are. Yeah, I just I just get so lost in it. You know, you know, you snap your fingers and bam, two hours have passed. Right. Where you know right. how? I, I probably will try to do some you know more graffiti sketches. I I miss that time. That's this probably explains my love of typography. Of course, absolutely. See, I, I've been a follower of street art and graffiti art. Uh, all my life. Really? I agree with you. And the typographic stuff in particular yeah. is always what floored me. The thing I like the most is when you have to, you know, you have a sketch on a piece of paper and you have to transfer it to a huge, yeah. you know, surface, a wall on the side of a building and you have to get all the, you know, proportions correct and ratios between, you know, the size of the letters and uh, yeah. and. Uh, just yeah, you know, I had so much fun <laughs> with, with what to me is a very imprecise instrument. You know, a spray can. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My God. Yeah. You know, and I've never done it. I've never done it, and, and to, because to me that's intimidating. Oh man, it it was so intimidating. You know, we 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 would come up, you know, to uh, these meets. And, you know, crowd would, would form up behind us. Wow. And sometimes, you know, uh, even these all these world famous graffiti writers that we looked up to and they would watch us, wow. you know, live. No pressure. Yeah. It was just so nerve wracking, you know, sometimes even uh, here and there a cop would show up and, you know, they, they weren't giving us any, you know, hard time. They would just let us do because all these walls were legal. Uh, okay. You know, if, if they caught us, you know, doing graffiti on trains, we would probably get in trouble. Right. So here's so here's a good example, right? You're, you're in a situation where there's a lot of pressure. Everybody's watching. Oh, man. I remember that like it was, you know, yesterday. And you work through it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So what does that tell you? We can do it. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the answer I was looking for. Daniel, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for you know inviting me, and thank you for doing all this. I wish everyone you know happy Friday, amen, and have a great weekend. And don't forget to give good UX. Absolutely, <laughs> I will keep an eye out for articles and videos and other things from you very soon. Take care, my friend. Take care, Joe. Thanks. That wraps up this edition of Making UX Work. Thanks for listening, and I hope hearing these stories provides some useful perspective and encouragement, along with a reminder that you're not alone out there. Before I go, I want you to know that you can find show notes and links to the things mentioned during our conversation by visiting givegoodux.com podcast. You'll also find links to more UX resources on the web and social media, along with ways to contact me if you're interested in sharing your own story here. Until next time, this is Joe Natoli reminding you that it's people like you who make UX work.